Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And we're back at Kate Murphy Studios. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, last week, Yolando forgot their recording equipment, so we sat down to record, and then, no. (laughs) I had mics and no wires to connect the mics. It was a mess. It was a whole sermon right there. Mm. Uh, So what's astonishing you this week, friend? Well, I was astonished last week by something um, that I found that I discovered in the course of my preparing for the sermon. Um, I preached that story from John chapter 21 where the disciples were fishing they fished all night didn't catch anything the risen the risen Christ was on the shore said cast your nets to the right side and they caught this great catch of fish Um, Jesus then has a conversation with Peter do you love me you know I love you feed my sheep does that three times and um, is that last part that got my attention where Jesus says some things to Peter about how he was going to die. And apparently John was close by. and <laughs> The beloved disciple who many think are, is John. Yes. And Peter says to Jesus, well, what about this guy? What's going to happen to him? Mm-hmm. And Jesus basically says, don't worry about him. Mind your business. Mm-hmm. Just follow me. Do what I told you to do. And um, last week, I was in a meeting with a group of pastors. Actually, it was a week and a half ago. And uh, pastors It was a meeting I was not invited to. Well, well, are you in our part? I guess you are considered our part of this. That might be ironic given the story you're about to tell that I just said that, but go on. It's a a group of of pastors from different denominations uh, in North Charlotte. And uh, they're going around the table sharing what's happening in their congregations. And there were... Several pastors, about 30 folks in the room, several pastors of well-known congregations. And as they spoke, I started, I I caught myself sliding down in my chair Mm -hmm. thinking they are doing it well in this season. They are doing it better than Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. And then some other pastors spoke, uh, pastors I did not know. I did not know their congregations They seem to be smaller than the one I serve. And I found myself sitting up Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, we're doing more than them. We're doing it slightly better than Mm -hmm. them. And I realized that I was right in the trap of the devil. Mm -hmm. That kind of comparing and you, you evaluate your worth, you determine how well you're doing by comparing yourself mm-hmm. to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's that place that I just named in John 21 where Jesus tells Peter, basically, focus on what I've told you to do. And I was studying that last week, and I realized, oh, what Jesus has given me to do, what Jesus has given Derrida Church to do is enough. Mm-hmm. I don't have to copy anyone else. Mm-hmm. I don't have to compare myself to anyone else. What Jesus gives us to do, our assignment is enough. And mm-hmm. so we really must be. I, I, I know I am wired in such a way that I've got to be careful about 
avoiding the quicksand of comparing. Yeah. I mean, I, that's one of those stories that like the older I get and the more I read it, just the deeper and richer and more holy it becomes because I recognize how true it is. Like, it's amazing when you step away that in this moment, you know, Jesus has shown up to where Peter is, has met Peter at a place of, you know, he's been fishing all night, they've caught nothing, meets him in his failure and emptiness, like gives him what he was seeking, throw your net on the other side, and he gets this miraculous catch, right? So Jesus has met him not as he's struggling to do ministry, but as he's struggling to, you know, catch fish, like really do recreated things that right. he knows how to do. Right. And and really, Jesus in that moment is recreating Peter's call. Like it's yeah. exactly Peter's call. And in that moment after Peter has just spectacularly failed, I, you know, Peter hasn't failed Jesus as much as Peter has failed Peter. Right. Because at the Last Supper, what he says is everybody else might deny you, but I'll never deny you. And and Jesus isn't under any illusions about where Peter is on his spiritual journey. So Jesus isn't disappointed or angry at Peter. He's just like, yeah, I mean, this is, you are. Like, I know you better than you know yourself. And so, you know, Peter, I mean, we know is just so full of self-loathing and um, dejection and despair because he's failed just again and again to be the disciple that he felt like he wanted to be and needed to be to belong and be worthy to belong to Jesus. And so then in this moment, Jesus meets Peter, resurrected Jesus meets Peter on the shores, recreates his call story, like gives him this abundant catch of fish to say, you know, I'm still choosing you. And then has this conversation with him that Peter has denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus in in public, obviously, because we have the story, gives Peter a chance to affirm him three times. And then Jesus really says, like, I still choose you, right? Like, you are still the rock. Like, you are still, like, I'm going to shape you. I'm going to show you. You're not, I'm not calling you to build an empire. I'm calling you to feed my sheep. But I, I know you love me. Like, here's what loving me looks like. And it's so interesting that just in the scope of how far and how tenderly and personally and specifically Jesus is meeting Peter in his needs. It's just so human that Peter's like, well, but what about that guy? What about that right? guy? I mean, just because we feel threatened by God's love for other people. And I think that's just because the culture around us is such a culture of competition and scarcity and such an anti-kinship culture that we sort of feel like, well, if Jesus really loves that person, then there's less love for me. And if that person's story is really beautiful, then it means my story can't be so beautiful. Right. And I think that like the fact that we struggle with that so much, I mean, that story is such a gift for me because I realized like, Oh, okay. Like I don't need to beat myself up about this. Like I need to do what you like that self-compassion that you're talking about. Just like, I need to recognize this in myself. I need to realize that like, Oh, this is not, this is not who I want to be. This is not helpful. This is not even real. Like this, these fears and scarcity, it's not even it's not eternal. And so I can just notice it and, and let it go and remind myself what I do believe in, which is that, you know, the Lord loves me and that God's love for me doesn't take away from God's love to you. And that what God is doing is shalom so that our flourishing is interdependent. And, um, I, I just, but I think it's everywhere. Like I see it all the time as a mother, um, you know, with my kids that I am struggling so far in schooling because schooling is so, 
in our culture, schooling is a competition, right? And it's just all about ranking and like, are you ahead or are you behind? Like right now, post pandemic, we're saying every third grader is failing and behind. I'm like, well, if every third grader is behind, then no third grader is behind, right? Because learning is not a competition and and knowledge is not scarce and wisdom is not scarce. And so we need to sort of retrain our brains, renew our minds in Christ and be able to see that what what is for us is not at the expense of other people. And that when we lift one another up, we we all flourish. And that just as my daughter doesn't need to compete with her classmates and like that, that there's enough learning and enough opportunity for everyone. You know, if I just, it's just an example of like the culture very much says, no, there's not, there's only a few people who matter and everyone else is going to be serving them lattes. Like that's what the culture explicitly says. If you are a C student in middle school, like you're done, it's over. you're done. You are worthless POS and good luck. And we take that, into the gospel and and so we read you know that affects how we see well, even in that that particular scripture where jesus says peter do you love me asks mm-hmm. do you love me more than these mm-hmm. most interpreters many interpreters say that P- that jesus is asking peter do you love me more than these other disciples oh, right geez. going back to comparing but jesus is in the minds of other interpreters including me Saying, do you love me more than these fish? This this this, this, this great, life. Yeah, this great this, catch yeah. of fish. Because Jesus has just asked them to bring over the fish. He didn't need it to cook because he's already cooking Got fish on breakfast. The fire. Right. Yeah. So he did it's do you love me more than this outward success? Right. And do you love me more than this life that you'll leave behind if you recommit to following me? And I but I do think it's just so huge once you know, I, again, I've never seen the matrix, but like, I just think that's the metaphor that's really helpful for people. Stop it. I've never seen it. We've covered this, but it's just this idea of like, all of a sudden you're like, Oh, everything that I thought I knew for sure is kind of upside down and backwards. And it, it just is so much deeper than I perceived to say that even like you're sitting around a table with a bunch of pastors and you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm competing. Yes. And I'm in a Jesus competition with these people. What's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Right. And instead of seeing like we are all, we are all, we are kin. We are all on the same team. We share good news. We feel threatened by one another. And I, I mean, A, really identify with that. And just that spiritual practice of noticing it and then digging down deeper and say, what is truer than my insecurity is that I want to anchor myself in Christ who says, I do not need to be threatened by my brothers and sisters. And it was the scripture that reminded me that faithfulness in following Jesus is enough. You do what you can. You do what you're called to do. Leave the results up to the Lord. Because and it, is enough. it is finished on the cross, right? Yes. And because what we don't want to do is recreate Cain and Abel in modern day life, right? Mm. To feel like if the Lord is pleased in someone else's ministry and someone else's gift, I'm threatened by that. Like that... That's the original, you know, fruit of sin. And we need to know that about ourselves, not beat ourselves up about it, but just recognize that trick. I mean, you said it like, oh, Satan is, <laughs> Satan is conspiring. And again, we think like, oh, when Satan is busy, people are levitating and vomiting. And, but, you know, we don't recognize that these very normal and natural 
patterns that we have are actually demonic Mm -hmm. and it's spiritual warfare going on. And I say that not to like psych anyone out. Like we just need to recognize it and be like, that's not true. Or gosh, I know it's not true, but I'm still feeling it. So how, how can I, um, seek the Lord for some steps that I can take to anchor myself in my hope. So, so what's astonishing you? Well, um, so my, I guess maybe it's spiritual struggle day today. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> I guess I think, um, or I know for sure I have really been wrestling for a long time, um, and sort of more acutely in the past couple months, um, with this, um, writing project book that I'm trying to work on. And, and I've been yes. talking uncomfortably about doing this for, for years, but I just have, um, I have a lot of um, I have a lot of discomfort talking about it because it just feels um, prideful and it feels selfish and it, uh, egotistical. Like I just have a lot of hangups. Um, but a couple months ago, and I don't even know if I've told you this. I don't think I've said it on the podcast. But like a couple months ago, I started waking up in the middle of the night like in existential terror about dying. <laughs> so it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> it's really fun to, to live inside my head. Oh, no. And um, so I, I talked, I have a therapist and I was talking to my therapist about it. Cause you know, my father died um, two years, well, about a year and a half ago. And it was during the pandemic and it was just such a, it, it was unexpected. It was not COVID, but kind of all of the normal processes of grief were not possible. And so I'm just still really like, absorbing just the magnitude of that. I don't, I don't live, I live eight hours away from my parents. So just a lot of, it's just really hard to, to grasp the magnitude of that truth. And, um, and so I really just thought that this was just another new fun stage of grief (laughs) that I I was talking to my therapist about it. And she's like, "Mm, no, that's not, that's not it. And I'm like, okay. And she said, is there anything that you feel that it would be um, a tragedy, like that you feel it would be a tragedy if you died without doing? And I was like, well, (laughs) funny you should ask, because I really, along with my hesitancy and discomfort about talking about this book, I also know that I don't control whether or not a book would be published or would be any good or helpful to people. Um, but I do know for sure that if I got to the end of my life and hadn't tried to do it, I would like that would really I would really regret that. Mm. Like it would be painful to and, and I would feel like a fool if I spent so much time doing this and put it out there and people were like, oh, that's sweet. Add that to the list of things nobody asked for another Presbyterian pastor writing a vanity book. Okay, thanks. Bye. Like that will be embarrassing if it happens. Like I'm not gonna lie, and it's very probable that it will happen. But what I know for sure is, if I don't do it because I'm afraid of failing in that way and looking like an idiot, I know that I will have um, real regrets that I didn't try it. Right, um, and that if I do it, like that failure would just be a place where the Lord will meet me and I will grow spiritually. Right. So just, I mean, I just really believe that avoiding failure is not a criteria for faithful living, right? Like you don't decide, I don't want to do this because 
I might fail. Like if it's faithful, you do it. If it's unfaithful, you don't do it. But you don't determine whether it's faithful or not by the probability of failing or succeeding at it. Do you know when I discovered you had angst around this book? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) From the beginning? Once when we were setting up to record the podcast, we're putting the mics and all that stuff together. And I brought it up. And you said very clearly, we are not talking about this on the <laughs> podcast. Do not. Yeah. And you you don't do that about anything. No. But on that subject, you're like, we are not talking about this book. Do not talk about this right. book. Well, I think one of the things that I wanted is like, okay, if I'm going to do this, A, I don't think I can. And B, if I'm going to fail at it. Wait, I, did you just say? No, I, yes. I don't think I can. I, I really, um. I mean, I just, I, this is just a really tender growing place for me. And this is one of the things that I wanted to talk about. It's not that I don't think that I have, I feel like the Lord has given me gifts and insight. I don't know that I have the discipline to do it. Like I, I feel like I'm going to quit on it. So I just, I I have thought like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to try to do it on the down low so that if I fail, very few people will know about it. And so I, that's why I didn't want to talk about it because I just don't want, I don't want people to see me not be able to do it. And, and I just recognize that I think it's really important, um, just to be, um, honest about that with people, because ultimately whether or not I write a book is not obviously of huge importance, but I do feel like I am 46 years old. And what I am seeing as I've been just sitting with all of this and, and trying to understand like why I'm so blocked about this and why I'm so resistant to it, Um, Because obviously I'm a person who, like, I do things and I don't quit on things. And I, you know, so why, so why am I so stuck on this? And, um, and I realized that, you know, I'm 46. And I think that the thing about being this age is it's really easy to feel like anything that is for you, you would already have, right? So it's just easy to think like when I was in, when you're young or when you're 20s, or even when we were doing transformation process and we were in our our thirties when we started that. And like, when you become a parent, I became a parent in my thirties. And so these were just like huge identity altering life altering changes. But also I look around in my peer group and like a lot of people are going through that. Right. So it's just very normal when you're in, when you're a child, when you're in your teens, when you're in your twenties and when you're in your thirties, it's normal to be like, turning the page on a new chapter of your life and being like, I don't know if I can do this. I have no experience. I might fall on my face. It's terrifying. And also like, I'm not the only one, right? But you cross over into your forties and your fifties and your sixties. And all of a sudden, I I think the culture, not the witness of scripture, but the culture sort of says like, Hey, if you were going to be a pastor, you'd be one. If you were going to be an author, you'd be one. If you were going to be a success, you'd be it. And so this is like, you are who you are, like stay in your lane and write out your, you know, and, and so I think it's really important for me to say like, whether or not I fail or succeed at this, I don't want to stop taking big risks for the Lord in my forties. Like, I don't want to be done now I don't want to say like, okay, I've learned all I'm going to learn. I've achieved all the wisdom I'm going to achieve. I have, and now all I'm going to try to do is like gatekeep and ride it out. Like I, and I think like the beauty of our tradition is that it's just filled with stories of unpromising old people (laughs) 
being transformed by the Holy Spirit and and life taking turns that is unexpectedly full of the glory of God, right? And I know that we are entering into a season of life where our lives can change on a dime in tragic ways. And so it's really important to realize like we have to be like vulnerable enough that we would allow the Lord to meet us um, in something that is new and impossible and unknown and think like God is still God and I'm an older version of myself, but I am still um, someone who can partner with the Lord to do things for the glory of God. So I just want like, I just feel like regardless of what the product of this is, that in terms of my own following Jesus and my own healing, it's really important um, to be to be in this process and to be a little transparent about, like, we are not called to be experts. <laughs> like, we are called to begin again, again and again and again and to become like a little child. And like, I think part of my resistance is I've just been so resistant to be a beginner again um, because it's uncomfortable. And especially when you are no longer surrounded by peers who are in the same boat. And I look back, and this is the last thing I'm gonna say, but I look back to going to seminary and I went to seminary straight out of college. But one of the great gifts is I went to Boston University and because of the way classes were structured and we're in this big metropolitan area, Um, We had classes just Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I went to seminary with a lot of people, a lot of diversity in terms of spiritual background, ethnic identity, um, and, and generational. Like a lot of people could continue to work as a firefighter, to work as a nurse, or to work a job and still go to seminary full time. And so I had, and I didn't realize it at the time because I was young and dumb and, you know, I was trying to be a son of thunder or whatever, but I you know, I didn't understand the glory of what it meant to see, to sit next to somebody in their fifties starting to learn Hebrew with me. Right. And like at the time, I think I probably thought like, too bad you didn't start in your twenties like me. Right. Like I didn't see just what, like how deeply that glorified the Lord in a way that my sort of traditional career path couldn't. And, um, so I'm thinking a lot about them, about those who people who were my peers and who were ministering to me in ways that I did not understand at the time and realizing like, oh, they, they did that. And the Lord was with them. And I'm so blessed by their witness, even if I didn't, if it was a seed that didn't get planted until this time. So I still feel like I'm going to fail. I still think it's a distinct possibility. I still am pretty sure whatever it's still uncomfortable to talk about but i also just feel like it like i'm astonished at what the lord is doing in it so by fail you mean well that you a, don't complete the book or by fail you mean oh, people reject the, I, mean, I don't understand you know, there's there's so many ways i've pictured oh, failing oh, okay. <laughs> like, just like, like, which is interesting because when i first met you it was during that oh, as i was getting to know you it was during that that um presbytery church transformation um project and we had to attend weekly, monthly meetings together, and you became the second colleague that I studied, that I watched on purpose in meetings. Because I noticed something, you and our colleague, Albert Moses, both very extroverted people, you have a way of speaking in a meeting that 
um, I don't want to say drives the meeting, but it just it, it keeps it just keeps pace with the meeting. And I found myself as an introvert. By the time I was ready to speak, the 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 conversation already moved on. <laughs> and so I don't know if you remember this conversation that I had with you, but um, I said, and I remember because we were um, here at. Holbrook Park. It was right after we discovered that we didn't live far from each mm -hmm. other, and we start, and um, we we had stopped at at the park. And I asked you, I said, when you're in a meeting and you start talking, what what are you thinking? I mean, do you think through what you're going to say? <laughs> and you said to me, No, I just start talking, and wherever it ends up is where it ends up. And like my brain just isn't wired that way. And so to hear you say. I might fail. It's just very different than the side of you that I know is in a meeting that um, is very confident in expressing whatever it is you are led to express in that moment. Well, I'm very confident in my ability to talk. <laughs> um. So then, okay, so there's a little disconnect for me in talking and writing a book. They're both about words, both about ideas. Well, one requires forethought and one doesn't. So maybe it's not. A, no, I mean, I just, I, I don't want to, like, I really don't want to make this moment more about me than it already is. But I just, I do think that I have been astonished to really be sort of really holding this up to the Lord in a lot of places and really, and really seeking God and saying like, like I want to do this and, and is it like how sort of vulnerable it feels to admit that I want to do it. And also no one's like, no one's asking me to do this. And so, I, and, and so being able to just sort of say like in my freedom, like I actually just believe that there's something that would benefit other people, you know, whatever, it's just, it's risky. And I, I've been holding it up to the Lord and really, like inquiring, like, am I, am I supposed to do this or not? And not really getting like, whatever. I mean, I have friends who, who hear in very specific and concrete ways from the Lord. And I, I don't like, I, I usually hear from the Lord in hindsight <laughs> to mix a lot of metaphors. But I, I think one of the things that I'm understanding is that like the way that this is exposing my vulnerability and the way that it is challenging me like that's the point of it that that it is that it is driving me to the lord more be because of the riskiness and because of you know the potential foolishness and all of that that that's really spiritually healthy and i guess maybe as i'm processing in real time you know at the church we have added a sixth guiding principle, which is we practice healthy spiritual discomfort. And I think that's what this is for me. Like, it's just very uncomfortable for me. Everything about this is very uncomfortable for me. And to recognize that I think it's a holy discomfort. And I think that it is a, a discomfort that the Lord is really meeting me in and transforming me in. And I want to lean into it. And I know that um, either way, whatever happens, um, I just, I, I'm going to be more alive than if I avoided to me it. Because from the outside looking in, it would seem that this would just be within your set of gifts and within your wheelhouse and that this would not be, um, this wouldn't feel risky to you. It's mm -hmm. just very interesting for me to hear you express the, the risk that you're taking in. 
vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, anyway. Well, um, so that is what is astonishing wow. me, just how tenderly God has been meeting me in this and how I'm still struggling. Like, I'm, I'm still struggling. So. What are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? Well, let's see. Um, this past fall, maybe late spring, um, we don't talk about this very often on this podcast, but I think once or twice last year we mentioned what's called the manosphere. Yes. Uh, there is this um, community online also in person. I think they hold conferences. Basically, it's a group of men responding to the feminist movement, basically. And there is also a subset of the manosphere called the black manosphere. And last week, uh, someone considered to be uh, a, a kind of father of that movement died suddenly of a heart attack, I believe in Atlanta. His name is Kevin Samuels. And um, I think he was 56 or 57. Oh and um, I think his first video that went viral was when he really just lashed out. He's an African-American man, of course, black manosphere. He lashed out at this black woman on his program saying something like the average black woman isn't worthy of the average black man. And that, that just went viral. His last video, he said something like, um, women who are 35 and single are the leftovers. Hmm. And he just had this really harsh, um, angry, uh, but he didn't express it as ang as his tone was very soft, um, but, but, his, but his words and his thoughts were mean and uh, misogynistic. And poison. And poison. And so now there, there's a great deal of, of controversy around his death uh, because there are many uh, black women, social media, who in many ways are celebrating his passing. Mm -hmm. And then there are many men, of course, they, uh, I, I've heard the word prophet thrown around. And so I've been, I, I, I tune into the Manosphere every once in a while. I'm not a great consumer of that content, but I tune in because I know that it's a thing. And if I'm being my most generous self, what I see in the black manosphere is a group of men in pain mm -hmm. seeking to respond to the reality that in this country over the past decades, black women have moved up the ladder in terms of education and economics. Although and it, they are... Although they are still the least paid Correct. group of people in this. So black men, when they move up the ladder, are paid significantly more than black women. Correct. In the black manosphere, there is this terminology 
a high value man. Mm. That what women need to search for is a high value man. And so the 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 thinking, and this is very traditional thinking, that the currency that men have, success in career and wealth. And the currency that women bring into a relationship is beauty and youth. And so it seeks to tell women that if you don't use your beauty and youth to get a high value man, then you've wasted it. And when I first started hearing this, oh, this is this is so so wrong, so broken, so evil. And I also heard just recently, I just started to hear in it, I was like, oh. These are also men who don't feel valued. And so, unfortunately, the way they're taking it, the, the, the way they're seeking to find healing and peace is, is to take it out on black women. And there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the feminist movement. From their point of view, feminists have entered to play the male game. The male game of whoever has the most power and money gets to make the rules and, and dominates everyone else. And they don't understand that feminists are not playing that game. The game feminists are playing is no, we want to call out injustice. We want to call out patriarchy because it distorts, diminishes, destroys the lives of women, and it does the same for the lives of men. Mm -hmm. And we're not trying to, women are not trying to become men, but trying to help everyone become more human. Mm -hmm. And they just can't see that. It's the same with being anti-racism, anti-racist. Um, so I'm just really mindful. I'm just thinking about, because um, I, I don't enter into those spaces a lot. I don't preach on relationships a lot, but I'm just mindful that there is a struggle going on in our society and there's a struggle going on within the black community about how men and women can, should uh, relate to one another and what is, um, and I, I don't even like using this terminology, but the proper order, right? There's for people in the manosphere it's, it's a hierarchy, mm -hmm. and you've got to find your place in the hierarchy. Get in your place and stay in your place. Which is Greco-Roman culture, which is absolutely. imperial culture, yeah. which has got, I mean, not that. Instead yeah. of mutual submission, instead of love one another, right? Instead of trinity, right? Yes. Interdependent mm -hmm. unity. It's, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I, I think we were talking on our walk a couple of weeks ago about, um, uh, I was reading on Galatians 3, which is the passage that in Christ Jesus, there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. And then the translation I was looking at translated that last clause, which normally you see translated male or female. Um, and this particular translation translated male and female. And I, I need to go back and look at the interlinear because I don't know that preposition if that is just kind of a dealer's choice, if it could be and or, or, or if I just need to look at it. I don't, I don't know, but it's interesting to me 
what it means um, if, because, so the idea of saying there's no longer Jew nor Greek is obviously not saying that people's ethnicities no longer exist. But what it is saying is there's no longer exclusion on the basis of ethnicity, right? So that Jew and Greek are not pitted against one another any longer. Um, that and and so these identities become secondary to the eternal identity um, that we have in Christ. And the same with um, the, with slave and free. What it is saying is not in the world there no longer exists slavery because tragically and evilly it, it did and does. Um, but what it's saying is in the kingdom of God, people won't hold these categories anymore. Like all, all people will be free, right? So, um, but it's interesting if it's male and female, because what it suggests to me, and this is where I think it's really, I mean, I do think that we need to think better about gender. Like I think that in certain parts of the body of Christ, there is a really hierarchical, patriarchical, honestly, um, major like untransformed version of gender that we we often say like oh this is the most traditional and the people who are challenging these gender roles they are um they are leaving um the tradition and they're innovating when in reality it's the exact opposite that the earliest Christian traditions challenged these strict hierarchical patriarchal gender roles. Correct. Um, and it is it and the early church, the early um, the most original version of the church challenged and distorted them and crossed those lines. And then as the church got some imperial power, all of a sudden they started to find ways to make the revelation of Christ compatible with the societal structure. So instead of transforming and challenging it, it it people found a way to use Christ's name blasphemously to break the second commandment, second commandment, to use the Lord's name in vain to say that these hierarchies are of God. Um, so, I mean, that's just a tragic thing. But I, I think that idea of like, I don't, I think that for those of us who who know really clearly that God isn't trying to make like a kinder, gentler, holier empire, <laughs> that God is not, in fact, um, categorizing life and saying some life has more value than others, um, that what what we sort of say often is like, well, let's just not talk about gender, <laughs> and and so we don't have a we know what we're against, but we don't know what we're for, and. I don't know that there would ever be a, a time, and I really mean I don't know this, I, I can't imagine a time in the future where people become sort of androgynous, non-gendered, um, androgynous and non-gendered. Like, I do think that gender is part of our created identity. I think that, you know, right from the beginning of scripture, Genesis 1, the, the pronouns um, ascribed to the creating spirit of God interpose between male and female, right? Like humans are first created male and female in the image of God. So I think that there is something like just distinct and beautiful about, um, genders, but I do not think it's hierarchical. Um, and I, and I do think that our gender, the gender roles of the culture are just really toxic. Um, and we need to figure out how, not to erase them and not to tell people that their lived experiences, men and women are not, 
are not a part, a beautiful part of who they are, but also, you know, what do you, what do you keep and what do you let go of? And, and I was saying before, like one of the things that I have found so life-giving about, um, and so precious about just the work and the contributions of transgendered people in the culture and in the church is like just I notice my own discomfort and my own anxiety um, when I'm reading the work of transgendered people. Um, and I notice that that's not, um, this is not the posture of Christ, but I notice it. And then I just, I mean, gosh, I sound so like woo woo, but I just try to think like, well, okay, why, why do I feel this way? <laughs> like, why, why do I feel anxious about the pronouns a person uses? Why do I feel like I know what pronouns a person should use instead of them knowing? Why do I feel such so threatened when someone uses pronouns or shows up in the world that I don't think they should? And what it's really revealed to me about myself is something that I didn't know that was true, which is that I really, really see people through the categories of gender. Like, I fundamentally see you differently as a human because you are a man than I do my very good friends who are women. And it allows me to sort of notice and think, well, that's interesting because in the kingdom of God, do I think that we know people in gendered ways? Yes. Do I think that we have preconceived limits as to who and how they might be and what kind of role they might but no like I don't think that's of God and so I it's helped me notice like why is it so important to me to have a pronoun that would signal to me someone's genitalia what like why is why like that's so out of line with what I think the kingdom of God is about and so it's just helped me realize that I want to know men as humans and to feel the kind of connection and solidarity with them that I immediately and intrinsically do with women, right? Like I want to know people as human, especially in the body of Christ. And I and my discomfort and my struggle to be faithful and loving to transgendered folks in in a really vulnerable space and to undo some of the harm and to interrogate my own discomfort has really helped me to see I mean, I love being a woman um, and I, I really um, want to grow to be able to not know men in my life primarily first through their gender. Like that's a wall I have to get through before I can see and connect um, on, a, on a deepest level with them as human beings. Yeah, I go back to... Um the work of being anti-racist. When you're doing that work, it's just so very clear that you bring a lot of baggage, personal baggage, baggage of history to that work. I don't think we are as conscious yeah. of the baggage that we bring to gender. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I think we, we make a lot of assumptions that we already know what is right, right? We already have a sense of it should be this way. And if you are, like, for me, it is just a very radical thing that early Christians 
referred to each other as brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Right? How how different that must have made them, and odd <laughs> it must have made them seem in uh, Greco-Roman culture. Um, yeah, because siblinghood implied in that culture equality and equal you know a common heritage a common worth a common honor so to have this um society this community that brought genders and generations and ethnicities together and status like together as common brothers and sisters that's so radical so part of the problem that the manosphere is having that if the whole idea of gender is based around power, mm-hmm. and wealth, and hierarchy, then it makes sense for women to marry early and marry, quote unquote, well. But when you come into a time when women are well-educated, have good careers, then you come to a fork in the road. You either have to convince them, no, this this isn't the right way. You need to think about the wealth and status of men and their power because that's how you're going to get power. Or, which I think is the better option, the right option, you have to rethink the whole why of relationships mm-hmm. between men and women. What, what does it mean for us to be human together? And that is work. It requires us to unpack a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. And I and I hope that nothing that I said unintentionally um, communicated a, a lack of honor for the suffering and pain of transgendered folks and the risk and exclusion because I, I really it shouldn't be <laughs> um, and and it is a it is a stain I mean I, it is a stain against the church that we have struggled to just sit with the mystery I mean like every human being who crosses through the threshold of our lives and in the thresholds of our congregation our congregations our sanctuaries every human person is just a galaxy of mystery right yeah. and we love each other better when the sort of superficial illusions that we have about one another that allow us to be comfortable with one another when those are stripped away and we recognize that everyone is a mystery and that that everyone we meet is is either like bravely carrying just so much struggle and burden or desperately trying to like numb it mm-hmm. <laughs> and and um i i just i i just think that I think there are a lot of folks who just um, want to want to simplify sort of some of the conflict and pain that um, the visibility of transgendered people in our communities and in our churches has 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 made visible. And and what I want to say is both like I want to honor that pain because it came at such a cost um, to to vulnerable people for an insight for me sitting in my very safe seat as a cisgendered woman, I, I don't want to be like, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> you know, thanks for suffering dreadfully and so that I could see more. But I, I you know, it shouldn't be, but it, but it is. And I think, um, and I, I do want to like just really 
honor and celebrate just the gorgeous bravery of people who are allowing the Lord to lead them um, and not saying, well, this is what will, this is how I can show up in the world to make other people comfortable and to make other people believe that I am who I need to be. And so I'll just do that. You know, whether we get it wrong or we get it right, I, I think that God can meet us in our in our honest attempts to come alive in him more than when we play it safe and just say like, okay, well, what does the institution say? What does the authority say? Let me just get in line and try to stay out of trouble. Like that's not that, you know, we can sin and God can meet us in our sin. But if we, if we just, you know, live a life that the world will call not sin, then we have no, and I'm not saying any transgender person is sinning. I'm just saying that, often the presence of a transgendered person in our community unfortunately leads to a lot of division and enmity and painful sin and and that makes me think of that um, story in acts about philip and the eunuch the eunuch yeah right so it occurs to me as we're having this conversation that the scripture clearly says that this person is a eunuch but how would anyone know i guess there would be something and their dress. I don't know how this person could be outwardly identified mm-hmm. as a human, as uh, as a as a um, eunuch, as they are riding in a chariot. Um, and so Philip has this conversation, and the eunuch says, "Well, what's what's to prevent me from being baptized?" And Philip doesn't say, "Well, we got to talk about this little issue here." No, it's right. Nothing. Which, and if the people water. don't know, I mean, eunuchs in the first century ancient Near East, I mean, they were in this strange um, role. Like they were not men, but they were not women. They, according to Jewish law, had been um, like they had been. Black, uh, what am I trying to say? They'd been maimed or wounded in a way that could not be, they were just unclean and unwhole and unworthy. And they were specifically excluded from the temple. And so, you know, a lot of the ways that you hear people speaking about transgendered folks today was exactly the arguments and accusations that would have been laid against eunuchs in the first century Palestine. And so, so for the Holy spirit to be, you know, working in the life of, of this person and, you know, opening up scripture and then bringing Philip to this person and, um, and for Philip to understand that, you know, all of the categories have just been demolished. Like all of these categories that we choose to see the world through in order to feel more safe and comfortable in our own, in our own identities and in our own relationships with God, like these are just all swept away in radically disorienting ways. And Philip just, you know, he doesn't really know what to make of the eunuch, but what he knows is Jesus. And what he knows is there has been no prohibition. And what he can recognize is obviously the Holy Spirit has engendered this encounter. And so who is who is he to allow his understanding of what is seemly to stand in the way of what the Holy Spirit is clearly doing? And um, it is just a really powerful story. Yeah. And it illustrates for me that um, if you were to ask most churches, they would say, oh, yeah, I think our thinking is, Whosoever will come, mm-hmm. like 
<laughs> in many cases, we don't mean that. What we mean is whosoever doesn't make us uncomfortable. Right. Whosoever, whosoever meets is, my emotional needs. Yeah, who, <laughs> yeah. Whosoever is like us, you come. But the minute someone who is different in a way that brings me discomfort, that causes me to rethink my own assumptions, then no, you stay over there. Right. I think any time someone comes and including them makes grace radical, mm. that's, that's when we think, oh gosh, maybe this is too far. And and that's the problem is we have we have made cheap grace. Like we have made grace be like a reasonable thing. Like a good person would be nice to a good person and would include a good person and a, include a person of promise or include someone who's really earned their second chance. And that's just not what grace is. Grace is radical. Grace is offensive and grace is risky. And, um, our churches have not, we don't embody that anymore. And I guess the, the, the other thing that I really want to say about this, and, and then I just think we need to wrap up everything today. But, um, I think the interesting thing about looking at gender um, in our churches, in our body, in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God, and looking at race and ethnicity is um, I think when you are in a segregated body or when you are in a community where people are by and large adhering to the gender roles, you can have the illusion that you actually don't see color or that you don't have any um, racist expectations or that you don't have any misogynistic expectations. And, and it's really not until the spirit leads you, um, into a space where you are doing the work of anti-racism, when you're doing the work of transformation, when you're doing the work of reconciliation, that actually you start to see like, Oh, it's, it is in me, right? Like, like I did not realize how, much how deeply I've been formed by white supremacist culture, like how many biases I have towards white people and people who are not white. I didn't see it until I began to live in a community um, that was just rich in diversity. And, and then I started just noticing like, oh, I, I, you know, I am surprised in this way. Why is like, that's uncomfortable, like not uncomfortable because I don't want to be in relationship with this person, but uncomfortable because of what relationship with this person shows me about my own mm. deeply buried sinfulness, right? It's just easy to live under the illusion that you are one of the good ones, whether that means one of the good men or one of the good white people, when you're not in relationship with people who are being crushed by these oppressive systems. And then once you are, then you start realizing like, oh, I still have some vestiges of this that is influencing me in ways that I, I wasn't aware of and that I'm deeply, you know, ashamed of, but it's also just, it's in me. And so I it's need... It's just a reminder of the need for repentance. The need for repentance, ongoing repentance. Mm -hmm. my, my friend Charday says that one of the things that the Lord has really taught her is, you know, she used to think repentance was like something you did one time. One time down the aisle and, at a crusade. Right. And she's like, no, now I... And she, in fact, she talks about coming to the Grove for the first time and we confess our sins every week in church. And she, she talks about how like, man, the first time I came, I just thought like, what are these people doing? <laughs> like, what? Like they must be some big time sinners that every week they come and do this. And she says now like the Lord has really shown her that repentance is a lifestyle, right? That, that if you want to grow closer and closer to God, then you are also going to grow closer and closer to your own 
fallenness and you are going to continually be able to see your sin and the need to repent in order to grow closer. And you can't be threatened by that. You can't think like, oh, because I have sin and I need to repent, I'm worthless garbage. You have to be able to say like, no, this is unlearning is just a, a crucial and key and beautiful part of coming alive in Christ. And so, yeah. We sort of said on the walk today that we were going to talk a little bit about um, the leak in the Supreme Court with Roe versus Wade. And, I, and I've been thinking about that a lot. And more importantly, a lot of people around me have been thinking about it a lot. And we're already coming up on an hour. And this is not something that I want to do quickly. <laughs> so um, maybe we can just talk about that next week in terms of just how we're um, sitting with the pain yeah. and intensity of emotions and fear all an enmity that is all all around us and and just how we're trying to walk faithfully in that time so so i think we'll we'll wrap up for this week unless you want a last word nope thank y'all for listening so much if you want to find out more about what god is doing at derida presbyterian church you should first go to their website which is d-e-r-i-t-a-p-r-e-s dot org. Um, you should also check out their um, podcast, which is on the Podbean website and their YouTube channel um, where you can get back messages and worship services. And you should uh, see if you're in the Charlotte area or got some extra airplane miles about joining them for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. Look for the tree. There's lots of groves. And um, you can check out our podcast, which is on The Grove Church Podcast, which is on iTunes or, you know, wherever, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm never going to get tired of that joke. And um, you can check out our YouTube channel as well, The Grove Church uh, YouTube channel. And you can worship with us at 10 a.m. on Sundays on the live stream or in the sanctuary. Thank you for listening and we will talk to you next week.